hyperlinks are connecting pages together and allowing people to, as they surf the web, find new information. This for me has always been the thing that I've been most interested in because there is a social science of why hyperlinks are created and what does it mean for a website to create a hyperlink to another website that's used in order to guide people's attention, shape people's attention. And so the types of actors that I study have been political parties, social movement organisations, activists, and they are all making choices about who they hyperlink to and why. And these choices have measurable impacts. Welcome to this episode of Untangling the Web, a podcast of the Web Science Trust. I am Noshir Contractor, and I will be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in thought leaders to explore how the web is shaping society and how society in turn is shaping the web. My guest today is Professor Robert Ackland from the School of Sociology at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. You just heard him talk about his work with hyperlinks. Rob works at the intersection of network science and web science to study networks on the web. Under a 2005 special initiative of the Australian Research Council, he established the Virtual Observatory for the Study of Online Networks, VOSAN for short. His research has been published in journals such as Social Networks, Journal of Social Structure, Computational Economics, and Social Science Computer Review. And his book, Web Social Science, Concepts, Data, and Tools for Social Scientists in the Digital Age, was published in 2013. Great to be here, Nosh. Thanks again for joining us from Down Under. I want to start by asking you what got you interested in web science, coming as you did from an economics background, initially interested in issues that were related to economic development. As you mentioned, Nosh, all my training is actually in economics. In my first academic job after my PhD in 2001, I was working in an interdisciplinary research centre and I started working with a a political scientist, Rachel Gibson, who's now at, at the University of Manchester. And Rachel and colleagues were working on studying how political parties were using the web Uh, in order to undertake various political functions, such as raising awareness about issues, engaging with with potential voters, raising revenue. And a big aspect of that work revolved around the hyperlink, the, the idea that if you have more hyperlinks pointing to your website, that can bring more eyeballs to your content and therefore allow you to raise more awareness about issues that concern you. So I saw an opportunity there to use web crawlers to collect large-scale hyperlink network data sets and then to start studying these networks. I produced, for example, networks of political parties, uh, looking at mainstream versus major parties and, and conservative versus liberal parties. So I started to look at the structure of hyperlinks of political parties. And so it was at that point that I realized that what I was doing was in fact social network analysis applied to the web. And a big part of my career has been looking at how can methods and approaches from social network analysis be adapted to studying online networks. You use the word hyperlink a few times. And I know that that word just rolls off your tongue with a lot of ease. But for most people, when we think of social networks, we think of potentially links between people. So you have a 
friend on a social media platform or a follower on a social media platform. But when you're talking about hyperlinks, these are links not between people, but between websites. And then you use these to crawl the web. Can you unpack that a little bit more? My interest in the web has always been the fact that it's a socially generated network of resources. The resources are web pages and also other other media files. The piece of engineering that connects these resources together is the hyperlink. Hyperlinks do not get formed randomly. They are constructed because of choices that are made by people. Hyperlinks are connecting pages together and allowing people to, as they surf the web, find new information. This for me has always been the thing that I've been most interested in because there is a social science of why hyperlinks are created and what does it mean for a website to create a hyperlink to another website that's used in order to guide people's attention, shape people's attention. And so the types of actors that I study have been political parties, social movement organisations, activists, and they are all making choices about who they hyperlink to and why. And these choices have measurable impacts. When I started studying the web, there was not the availability of tools and techniques to allow a broad range of social scientists, particularly those with an interest in social network analysis, to easily access and and collect hyperlink data and turn these data into what I I call research-ready data sets, data sets that are amenable to social network analysis. And so I really designed the Voson software to be a tool for social network analysis using hyperlink data. The Voson software was effectively a, a web crawler that allowed researchers to easily select a set of websites and then find how these websites connected to one another through hyperlinks. Nosh, you make the point that today it's very common to think of people networking on on the web or via social media. But in the early days before social media, Web 1.0 was an era where you had to have quite a lot of resources in order to be able to put material up on the web. For example, newspapers or academic institutions. The, The typical user of the web was a consumer of information. Web 2.0, which started with blogs, but then moved on to the social media era, became an era where it was possible to not only consume information, but produce information. And so today it's very easy to conceptualize this idea that people go onto social media and connect with one another. But in the Web 1.0 era, it was less easy to conceptualize this, but I really saw the hyperlink as the tool that allowed organizations and groups to connect to one another. And I was interested in using social network analysis to study that phenomenon. So one of the things that you're pointing out is that websites are very strategic about which other websites they point to, because that's how they represent themselves to the public and are also very interested in which websites are pointing to them. And to the extent that we know in society that you are judged by the friends you keep, what you're saying, Rob, is that a website is judged by the hyperlinks it keeps. 
it's always of, of great interest to know, well, who is hyperlinking to who? It's a measure of popularity in an information context. It's a measure of authority. And is your website an authoritative source on a particular topic? It's very important to know who is linking to you. And also the perception of your organization is very much influenced by who you direct your hyperlinks to. It's one of the aspects of web science that, that, that I find very interesting and compelling. One of the things, of course, that can happen with hyperlinks as it does today with uh, friend links or follow links is that you can create them and at some point you could dissolve them or you could unfollow someone or unfriend someone or remove a link that you have with someone. So as you look at it from a historic point of view, is it possible to be able to go back in time and look at the archive to see when someone might have created a link from one website to another and when it might have dissolved and what that might tell us about society? It's a really important aspect of research in the sense that the web is constantly changing. This is one of the reasons why governments are very concerned about preserving the web, because it's a it's a digital record of a of a country, of a society. From a perspective of a web scientist, I think there's really two aspects of hyperlinks that are in some ways the holy grail um, for research. Number one, I find that when I present my hyperlink research to people, one of the first things they say is, you know, how has it changed over time? Another aspect that, that's very important is knowing what amount of attention is traveling through a hyperlink. You know, it's difficult to know exactly how many people are following that hyperlink. So one of the interesting and important contributions, Rob, that you have made to the study of web science is the development of this virtual observatory for the study of online networks. When you began that effort, it was focused largely on mapping hyperlinks between websites. And since then, you have evolved the entire project to also look for mapping links that happen between organizations or people who have Twitter accounts. Tell us a little bit about why you got interested in creating what I think has become a remarkable public good for anyone interested in studying web science. I was always interested in developing tools that could be used by non-programmers. Web science brings people from a whole lot of disciplines. Um, the whole point of web science in, in my mind is, is that it's, it's studying how the web is contributing to society from a lot of different dimensions. It's not just about the engineering, but it's about the social, political and economic impacts of the web. As the web evolved to the social media era, I wanted to make sure the Voson software evolved. We started then collecting data relating to Facebook. But of course, the APIs and privacy changes on behalf of the social media companies in terms of access to data means that a tool like Voson has to constantly be evolving as well. So Voson's designed to allow researchers to collect data from major social media platforms using application programming interfaces. The current tool does enable collection of Twitter network data. And this is, I believe, really important for the study of political deliberation, how that is occurring on social media. And so to the extent that the social media companies continue to provide open access through to their data through APIs, then I'm very keen for the Voson software to be a part of the web scientists toolkit. Along with your evolution of work from hyperlinks to looking at other social media platforms, 
You've also evolved in your conceptualization of bots, where initially you could think of a bot as being a web crawler. We now know a lot about spam bots and uh, chat bots and bots that can conduct automated high-frequency trading in global financial markets. And you also talk a lot about what you refer to as social bots. First of all, how do you define a social bot and what differentiates a social bot from some of these other bots that we've just talked about? My interest in social bots came about around the 2016 US presidential election and also the Brexit referendum in that year. It really raised awareness about the potential for social media to be a vector for influence and the influence might be coming from foreign influence operations. So troll accounts, for example, set up by foreign governments in order to try and influence political conversations. But another area of concern related to so-called social bots, the idea of, of intelligent agents or bots is, is not new. But the 2016 US presidential election and, and, and around that time, there was concerns about how bots were being used in order to shape conversations on social media. I became very interested in how to understand how bots might be having an impact on political conversations on Twitter. And so this really gets back to a very sort of a long-standing and interesting question in social science research, and which is how do we measure influence? Is it the case that they are influential because they are very active and they're tweeting a lot? Or is it the case that they are influential because their tweets somehow help to propagate particular information or raise prominence of particular themes or frames. And so I think the, the, the presence and impact of bots is a, a, a core issue and, and potential concern for, for web science. So while there is a lot of research that highlights the dangers or the risks associated with social bots, can you talk a little bit about why and how you believe that social bots can actually help promote deliberative democracy in social media? If we think about bots in other areas of, of society and, 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 and the economy, they're, they're generally designed to be useful in the sense that they provide information that helps people make decisions in a financial market setting, for example. And so first work that I got involved in the area of social bots with, with Tim Graham, we were interested in the potential for social bots to play a positive role in, in political deliberation online. If we think about what political deliberation involves, it's this idea that people are engaging with one another, often with people who do not share the same views, and they are able to develop a common set of terms and understandings about a potentially divisive social issue. And potentially change minds or at least come to a common understanding about what the problems are. We were interested in the, in the idea that it might be possible for social bots to be designed to, to have a positive impact on political deliberation, for example, by connecting groups of people who otherwise are not connected in, in online conversations. One of the bots that could be designed in such a setting was what we called a bridger bot. And the idea was that such a bot might help to try and connect communities in social media who otherwise are not connected to one another to help promote cross-community dialogue. Another thought that we had was the idea that 
certain clusters of, of uh, social media users could benefit potentially from being exposed to ideas that are different to the ones that they currently have. And so the idea was a, was a bot that could, could somehow start to operate or start to um, be present in a conversation, um, participating by, by raising ideas that were somehow counter to what the current thinking was. However, I would like to say, and this, this is where I think web science is really important is because it's one thing for a social scientist to conceptualize of a, a popper bot or a bridger bot, but this is a, an engineering and design um, issue. And so this is where web science can play a role in terms of connecting engineers, computer scientists and social scientists in projects that are aimed to study, for example, the potential positive role of social bots in, in political deliberation. Speaking of positive roles of social bots, you and Tim also inspired by Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics, postulate three principles of social bots. So the paper on social bots that I co-authored with Tim Graham was partly inspired by our common interest in studying the web from a social social network analysis perspective, but there are actually two literary um, inspirations for this work. The first inspiration is evident in the title of the paper, which is Do Social Bots Dream of Popping the Filter Bubble? So this was a, a reference to Philip K. Dick's seminal novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And this is a novel that inspired the Blade Runner film. And so we were interested in this idea of social bots as autonomous agents with a purpose. And we were interested in the idea that the purpose of social bots could be a positive one in the sense of making a, a positive uh, contribution to deliberative democracy online. However, this is an engineering problem. We're a social scientist, but we realize that the design of, of a, a social bot is an engineering task. And so another literary inspiration for this work was Isaac Asimov, who, um, who famously proposed the, the three principles of robotics. And so we drew on those principles. And, and I want to emphasize that this is not an engineering paper that we're proposing. In some ways, it's a, a thought piece. But the first principle of, of, of robotics is that, or our adaptation of Asimov's principles was that a social bot must do no harm to a human being. And so how, how might we think of a social bot creating harm uh, to a human being? Well, by being annoying, for example, by butting into conversations where they're not required, by creating noise in, in a social media conversation. The second is that uh, social bots must protect their own existence, except where in, in doing that, it would conflict with the first rule. The idea there is that a social bot has to be designed well in the sense that it's not annoying and it doesn't get outed very you know, straight away as being um, a bot rather than a human, because then that will turn lead to people or a social media platform banning it. The third principle that was adapted again from Asimov's three laws of robotics was that social bots must make a significant improvement to deliberative democracy. That's brilliant. I love it. Another major contribution that you've made to web science is the book that you published in 2013 titled Web Social Science, Concepts, Data and Tools for Social Scientists in the Digital Age. Tell us a little about your thinking when you decided that you would write this book and tell us what you're hoping to achieve by people who would read this book. 
I've been involved in teaching at the ANU for the last 10 years now. Um, my teaching has been in the area of the social science of the internet, online research methods. Essentially, my goal in my teaching has been to um, equip social science students with the concepts and also the tools and the methodological training to allow them to do web science in the sense that they can work with data being generated from the web to understand the social, political and economic impacts of the web. So my book really had two goals. Firstly, it was to introduce students and researchers to the web as a source of new data for studying social, political and economic behaviour with a heavy emphasis on social network analysis, but also other methodological approaches. The second aspect of the book was to provide an understanding of how social scientists can contribute to the future development and, and pathway of the web in order to, to allow the web to, to reach its full potential or to, to continue to have its full potential in terms of making a positive contribution to society. I'd highly recommend that book to anyone who's interested in helping us understand how we live online and what are the consequences of that. It has been a true delight to get a chance to catch up with you and to hear all about the ways in which you've been thinking about the past of web science, the present of web science, and also the future of web science. And I'm very encouraged and inspired by everything you've done to contribute to the web science community in terms of your own research, in terms of the platforms like Vosan that you have helped develop, and the book that you helped write to help shape the next generation of students. So thank you again, Rob, for joining us today. Thank you, Nosh. It's been my pleasure to participate in, in web science and, and to participate in this podcast. Thanks, Nosh. Untangling the Web is a production of the Web Science Trust. This episode was edited by Molly Lubas. I am Noshir Contractor. You can find out more about our conversation today in the show notes. Thanks for listening.